Happy Friday, developers. Today is June 16th, 2023, and welcome back to our Roundup episode, where you can catch up on the episodes you missed from the last two weeks from PodRocket. So let's get started. Last Wednesday, we welcomed on Simon Holthausen, part of the Svelte core team, to talk about what's on the horizon for Svelte, including what will be changing in Svelte's compiler. So for people who are in that phase of development, if they're using your stuff, Simon, is there something that you've like maybe hoped people are going to use in Svelte 4 that maybe doesn't seem immediately obvious? Whether that be through custom elements, whether that be through like the container CSS selector that you and the team have been working on, is there like a sleeping giant of features that you feel like are about to be overemployed? For Svelte 4, I'm not so sure. For Svelte 5, I'm definitely sure that we will like awake the sleeping giant. As I said, Svelte 4 is mainly a clean the deck situation, so we can start from a good code base, fresh, to really get the actual things going that we want to go. So, for example, for Svelte 5, we want to re-architect the compiler that transforms the Svelte code into JavaScript code under the hood. And it shows its age. Things have changed drastically in the landscape since back then. And like it's time to rethink how the compiler works, what it outputs under the hood. The moment Svelte 4 is out, uh, we will start brainstorming these things and to see how we can uh, re-architect things and then also set us up for a future where we can then, based on the new architecture, uh, add new features that people need. Like, for example, we still don't have a good solution for error boundaries. And we definitely want to have that in Svelte. And so um, we will definitely think about how features like that come into play with that re-architected compiler. What's something that's not being included in 4 that due to the nature of the beast, right? This is a maintenance clean the deck release. You're pushing out till five and people are saying, whoa, no, 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 no. I want it right now. <laughs> Is there anything in that type of basket that you're making a decision on? Basically everything that requires a, like requires more work on the compiler itself is more like a Svelte 5 thing because we want to rethink, as I said, the compiler, which probably means getting rid of many things inside the compiler. So it wouldn't be efficient to do it in Svelte 4, for example, because then we would spend all this time inside the current compiler architecture to achieve these things only to like completely rewrite it anyway. Right. So it's better, like Svelte 5 will come sooner if we can like make Svelte 4 like a smaller release, so to speak and then go off to Svelte 5 right away. Is Svelte 5 going to be the compiler release? Is that going to be the theme of Svelte 5? <laughs> uh, right now, nothing is set in stone, but we definitely, as I said, want to rethink all these things. It may be Svelte 5, maybe Svelte 6. I don't know how long it will take. Maybe we want to have other breaking changes in between just to ease migration and to not have one big release, which is to breaking. Ideally, we don't break anything on the outside and everything is purely additive and people don't see it, but it's different under the hood and sets us up to do all these new features. Right. But I wouldn't put a label on it like Svelte 5 is the release that will contain everything I've just talked about, but it's uh, probable. 
We also had on Josh Goldberg, who spoke on how devs can utilize ESLint in React and TypeScript. Here, Josh describes the differences between a linter and a formatter and how linters will be used in the future. Is anything driving your stronger opinion that they should be kept separate other than that just conceptually they're doing different things? Because it does feel like there's a lot of places where the linter is going to give me some error here, but the formatter could fix this automatically. So like those should or shouldn't be squiggly line underlines because they're going to autocorrect anyway. Ideally, king for a day, like how would that interplay work and what would the dev experience look like? That's a really good question and a hard one to answer. From a structural perspective, a linter is most often implemented in today's world as a tool that runs a set of individual discrete rules. Each of those rules flags for one code smell or something in particular, and will flag or report on any violation. That's what causes the little squiggly. And each of those reports may contain some auto fixes or suggestions for how to fix your code. Now, in theory, you could use a linter as a formatter, and there are some notable projects that do that. And that somewhat works. It's fine. A lot of people are satisfied with this. The problem is twofold. One, that's not what a linter oftentimes is built for. A linter allows for running individual rules, which then causes a bunch of reruns, which makes it much slower because rules will fix for specific things and you end up running the linter over and over again in fixed mode to fix for formatting. Mm. So it's worse at it. It is much worse at formatting than a formatter. Second, theologically, how do you set up a linter for formatting? There's so many different concerns, like tabs versus spaces, indent level, putting things on the same line versus next line, configuring the maximum length of a line. You can use a linter for that, but there are these edge cases that the linter will never be very good at fixing. And in TypeScript PS Lintland, we've completely given up on accounting for these edge cases in many of our formatting rules, because it's just this never-ending anger from people of saying, you know, in this 300-line file, this little edge case comes up, and we just don't have the budget. It's not worth our time to investigate these things. And if someone wants to go in and fix them for us, that would be great, but no one has stepped up yet. Do you think that It'll eventually be the norm where when devs go and are starting a new project or adding formatting and linting to their project that they're pulling some kind of configuration off the shelf or out of a package or somewhere, something where it's like defined for them. It's like, okay, this this is the domain that's handled by the formatter. This is what's handled by the linter. They are all configured to do their things. Or do you think that'll always be like the devs will kind of bring their own and, and make it work however they need to per project? I think the norm that we're moving towards is both of those, where we'll have pre-set up templates that do things for us. And we're already seeing languages like Go and Dino, or rather languages and frameworks, Go slash Dino, set that up for people, or projects like XO that set it up for you. No one really wants to have to configure these things, but then you do need to be able to configure them, especially with ESLint, which is, despite being a decade old, still getting more and more powerful and more and more used each year. We want people to be spending time on things that are valuable for them. So in TypeScript PS land, it's more that we're trying to set up TypeScript configuration stuff for you and then writing powerful rules. So if you want to configure them, can tailor them to your use case. And finally, we answered your questions about React with panelists Sean Day Person and Ben Holmes. We had many listeners interested in hearing about React server components, and Ben had the perfect explanation of how they work. I want to pivot over to React Server Components. We got a couple of questions about them. Victor asked, what are React Server Components and how will they improve the development of full stack React applications? So pretty broad, but I think a lot of people are interested in React Server Components right now. So 
if we could get a base layer of what they are and then how developers can implement them. I've been researching this for a while. I was actually on a server components panel a little bit ago because everyone outside of Next.js or inside of Next.js are trying to piece together like, how does this change React's architecture? And do you need Next.js to use it? And will there be a future where you don't need to use it? But high level, React server components are meant to be bringing things back to server fetching. Something that you run into when you're doing server-side rendering with React, which is a pretty common pattern if you're using Next, Remix, any of the popular frameworks, is every component is going to run on the server and on the client. So you have to have smart implications of, am I running on the server right now? Am I running on the client? I need to assume my code is going to ship both places, which can cause a lot of you know issues, leaking API keys, things like that. And it also implies that you're shipping a client bundle that's going to do all these fetch calls. So there's a cost to that where you need to prevent default and ship client-side logic for stuff like Apollo, which can be very large client-side bundles. So server components are meant to be a server-only option for React, where you can write components that will only run on the server. You're not leaking anything to the client. You're not shipping any bundles unnecessarily. And you can use async await to write fetch calls or write whatever you want directly in the component itself. So you don't need to write a React query to go reach out to an API and bring it back. You can do the API or even database query straight in the component and then process that data, massage it into the HTML that you want, and opt into client-side components only in the parts of your app that actually need it. So the ultimate goal there is making it easier to write server-side logic within your component so you can co-locate things, avoid shipping API keys and bundles unnecessarily, and letting you use new patterns inside of frameworks like Next where you want to have nested layouts and all of the troubles you might have run into if you're using Next 12 and before. That's more domain-specific stuff. So if you're in the Next.js crowd, try the app directory to see if it solves some of your problems. But if you're generally in the React community, look at server components, see how they work, try Next.js since it's the only way to try them right now, and decide for yourself if it simplifies your logic a little bit, because server-only is definitely a nice model. And that's it for today, Friday, June 16th. You can check out the full episodes linked in our show notes or on our feed. And if you like what you hear, follow PodRocket for more great web development content. See you at the next roundup. This episode was brought to you by LogRocket. Try it for free at logrocket.com.